0: In the United States, there are over 60 million people providing care to someone who is ill, disabled, or senior. The types of support available to these caregivers are dependent on private sector policies and federal and state laws, neither of which have kept pace with the unprecedented demands placed on people caring for a loved one. So what can we do as citizens to promote policies that help America's millions of caregivers? Well, today we're going to find out. I'm joined by Dr. Victoria Walker, She's the Chief Medical and Quality Officer for the Evangelical Lutheran Good Samaritan Society, the largest nonprofit provider of long-term care and senior services. Vicki's also the American Political Science Association's Congressional Health and Aging Policy Fellow. Her fellowship is focused on a project that's taking full advantage of the upcoming 2016 presidential election ahead of the Democratic and Republican conventions, Vicky's heading up a national effort dedicated to including caregiving issues in state party political platforms across the country. She's the national coordinator of the Family Caregiver Platform Project. Vicki Walker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Oh, I really appreciate it. Oh, well, and I should tell our listeners that Vicki is in the field, so she's actually doing the work that we're going to talk about. But before we get to the Family Caregiver Platform Project, can you tell us briefly about your background and your work as a physician?
1: Um, Sure. I'm a family practice doctor by training, and I worked in a small rural town in South Dakota for eight years doing family practice, uh, cradle-to-grave type of medicine, and then I spent five years working in our state psychiatric hospital. And I basically I oversaw the medical care for people that were there for psychiatric treatment who uh, were having uh, problems being able to, to be taken care of in their homes or at the nursing home.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: so that particular population really was, was a group of people that I really resonated with and uh, drew me into more interest in the policy field. Now, that, that actually led to quite a change in my career as well. And so and because I became so interested in the impact that policies have on direct medical care that can be delivered, I now work as the Chief Medical Quality Officer for Samaritan, as you mentioned, and I work primarily with, uh, with older people and, and those that are supporting us.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did you come to become involved uh, with the Family Caregiver platform project.
1: So uh, when I started doing the Health and Aging Policy Fellowship, I uh, came to Washington, D.C., and I just was able to meet just a tremendous number of people that were working on all sorts of fascinating things. And a couple of the people that I met were with Alterum Institute, Dr. Joanne Lynn and Ann Montgomery, and they um, just are, are doing a lot of amazing work to support um, people as they age. And one of the the topics that we really started talking about was uh, caregivers, and that conversation evolved into this current project.
0: And so tell us what exactly the Family Caregiver Platform Project is about and its goals.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. So the project really is about trying to take the partisan nature of Uh, the conversation around family caregivers and and just talk about it as people and and really generate um, conversations that help politicians understand why this is important to all of us, no matter what political party we might belong to. And uh, and to really start sharing stories and to start creatively thinking about what it is that we need to do to be able to support each other um, in these roles that we have as family caregivers and to recognize how important that is for the sustainability of our whole country as we really start to look at our population demographics shifting so that there's a lot more of us that are going to be in that older age category that will find ourselves needing help at some point in time. Um, how is it that we, we structure our, our policies to support family members as they as they fill this role for each other? So, they, what we're trying to do is to just um, have these conversations at our local political hardy level and include it in our platforms and just say, you know what, this is important. It's important to all of us and we want to make sure that we capture that in our platforms so that as these issues come up, that we can we can refer back to that platform and say, yes, we, we do need to support our family caregivers.
0: Mm-hmm. For, for listeners who are not really that familiar with the political process uh, here in the U.S. and for people who are listening outside of the U.S., can you tell us what a party platform is and does every state have one?
1: That's a really great question. And no, every state does not have one. 36 states in the United States, um, at least one party creates a a platform, and basically a platform is just a collection of all the things that the members of that political party say are important to them. And they they are structured differently in different states, and so some of them have lots of fancy sort of legalistic-sounding language in them, and others are very straightforward, bulleted kinds of lists of things. But it's just a way for the members of the party to put onto paper these are the things that we stand for and that we think are
0: important. Mm-hmm. And so then they take those platforms to the convention, and, and they, is, is that the idea to sort of validate them at the convention? Mm-hmm.
1: And so most, most of them will have a committee at the state level that um, will collect input from anybody in the party that wants to bring forth an idea. And then at their state convention, then they will vote on a final platform by the people that are attending their state convention.
0: Oh, I see. And
1: um, And then the delegates that go to the national convention bring forth the things that their state feels are important.
0: Has caregiving ever been in a party platform before? You know what there are a few platforms that have
1: um, some language about family caregivers. And so, um, for example, Iowa, it, um, they uh, the Democrats in Iowa had a few bullet points uh, talking about family caregiver issues in their platform already. But there's surprisingly few states that have have included family caregivers. And I think that for the most part, it's not, it's just something people had not really thought about before because mm-hmm. there's been a really positive reaction to the suggestion. It, it just hadn't really been thought of before. So that's the value of, of bringing this forward now, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Why is this work important to you and to the country? You know, I think
1: that there's not very many people that that you talk to that um, say that their ideal place to age and, and eventually die is in a nursing home. Most of us, as we age and are needing progressively more help, we would really prefer to do that in our choice of residence. and in order to do that, a lot of us are going to need some assistance, and right now, that's very hard uh, for, for even people that have enough money to pay for it. Oftentimes, it's very hard to find that kind of support because we just aren't, aren't really organized. Very well as a country to provide that kind of support, and so each family tends to kind of go through this really intense um, struggle to try and support that desire as, as an individual family. And we know that if people are unsupported in this journey, they you know the caregivers basically it, it can be incredibly overwhelming and exhausting, and and people just you know they they just burn out and they suffer consequences to their own health and their Certainly, their mental health and their, their financial health all suffer tremendously. And what ends up happening oftentimes is that people end up in crisis and uh, having to end up with a caregiver in fairly desperate uh, situations, both financially and just from an absolute exhaustion standpoint. Mm-hmm. And this ends up with people um, needing to be in institutional care, that, mm-hmm. that perhaps that could have been avoided. Mm-hmm. And institutional care is the the most expensive type of care that we can offer a person. And it's the kind of care that most people don't want. And so we have this unfortunate happenstance that because we we don't put the investment into supporting people kind of further upstream, we end up forcing them down this path that's really personally devastating to people and and it also doesn't accomplish the type of care that people generally say they want. And so um, I think that if we restructure how we put our resources forward, we can really end up in one of those win-win situations where people are able to get the services that they prefer and it actually costs less money and accomplishes a, a better quality of life for both the caregiver and the person that needs
0: services. Mm-hmm. It's almost like preventive medicine. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. And I think
1: that's why it resonates so much with me. It's You know, I'm a family practice doctor that that, uh, that fits into that holistic picture very nicely. Mm
0: -hmm. So why is this particular approach of going state by state and sort of having constituents work with local political parties likely to succeed?
1: Well, I think that, you know, every state has a unique situation that they're working from. For example, it's very, you know, different what kinds of supports are available, in the middle of South Dakota where I'm driving through right now versus what's available in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And so to try to apply the exact same cures, I guess, to, to every location um, is kind of disingenuous. I think it really needs to be local in order to be successful. Mm-hmm.
0: And taking advantage of the election cycle is a really smart way of going about it. So what is your exact timeline now? I mean, you, you obviously have a, an endpoint here, right? Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. So most states, not every single state, but most states change their platform in advance of that presidential election. Mm-hmm. And so most of them are having their state conventions in late May, early June of 2016. And so that really is our, our deadlines for getting these conversations started be included and voted on at the state convention.
0: Uh-huh. And I'd be curious to know, I mean, I'm sure like many people listening to this program, you're not really a political animal. So what have you learned about politics from working on this project?
1: Well, yeah, that's um, very true. I am definitely not somebody that has been involved in politics. Um, I, in fact, I've, I tended to shy away from being involved in politics because I felt as a healer, I didn't want to alienate people. And I thought that it it didn't really feel like I could make much difference anyway. People were just going to have their arguments, and so why, why get involved? Mm-hmm. That's that sort of been how I had lived most of my life. And then, you know, I think as I've, I've matured in my career, I really started to see the world differently and understand that people oftentimes don't have the understanding of the impact of their policies. If that's not the world that they're, you know, sort of living within, and that I had an opportunity to make sure that I I, I could tell that story um, and explain to to people that are making policy decisions why it mattered, mm-hmm. and that and that it really does make a difference, and and it's surprising to me now that I've I've gotten more involved in this of you know the power of the story and. Uh, when one person tries to go um, forward alone, it's hard to see much change, but when you network and you connect with other people, that one story can resonate so broadly that it, it truly can make a difference. And um, and so I, I think that I have a, a new respect for our political process and the duty that each of us have to really to, to get involved and to share our stories and to share our talents, and that if we choose not to do that, then we are advocating the choices in our lives to people that, that may not really understand the full impact of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Vicki, have you had to be a caregiver to anyone in your life?
1: No, well, I haven't been um, doing direct personal cares, but I have had very close Friends who were elderly that were neighbors, I became a caregiver for because their family lived out of town, and so um, my husband and I basically became the substitute kids next door. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the fact that I happened to also be a doctor was pretty handy because then I could could really help out and advocate with a lot of the medical issues that that came up and be a bridge there. So I've, I've had that experience, and then also in you know just in my own family with from a distance with grandparents mm-hmm. um, so I, I know I certainly haven't had the personal experience of living um, with somebody with dementia or with a major physical disability I hear the stories that the really truly heroism that caregivers do out of love and you know I'm not in their league but I, I have a taste of it from from my experiences but I am just wowed by the selflessness of so many people it, it really is humbling
0: and as you're working on the family caregiver platform project, are you also practicing medicine?
1: No, well, I'm in administrative medicine now. What I do is I work with a senior care organization as their chief medical and quality officer. Right. And so I'm I'm uh, not doing direct patient care right now. I'm kind of a, a degree separated from that. Uh-huh. But I I still consider myself to be practicing <laughs> medicine. But I'm not uh-huh. writing nearly as many prescriptions as I used to. <laughs>
0: Are you familiar with the um, Raise Family Caregivers Act?
1: I, I am. I have not been, um, you know, personally uh, involved in that, but I, I've been reading about it and following it.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting for our listeners. Uh, there is a there are actually two bills, one in the Senate and one in the House of Representatives. They're companion bills. Um, the the, the um, House bill is the is called the Raise Family Caregivers Act. RAISE stands for Recognize, Assist, Include, Support, and Engage Family Caregivers. And it's really fascinating to me because this, this bill was introduced in the House, uh, in July by a Republican, uh, Greg Harper of Mississippi. And it has slowly picked up bipartisan support. And over the, over the summer, it picked up some support. And then by October 1st, it had nine co-sponsors. And it now has 16 co-sponsors, which is a pretty big deal because, you know, it's so hard to get anyone in Washington to agree on anything. And um, (laughs) it's just it's fascinating to me because you can watch from the sidelines and see this sort of snowballing effect. And I'm hoping that this bill and the companion bill in the Senate, which was introduced by Susan Collins of Maine, uh, you you know, I'm hoping that this really catches fire as we go into the um election season um knowing full well that the likelihood of any bill getting passed is so tiny you know which is on the one hand really discouraging and on the other hand you look at those that increase in the number of co-sponsors and you think you know come on 16 Uh co-sponsors that's that's a big deal yeah so there are things that people are trying to do it's just the need is so urgent I, I, I wonder what you think about whether politicians are going to be paying more attention to this and and talking about this. Is that something that you you guys are also pushing for in your on your with your project?
1: Yeah, absolutely you know I think that I, I think that they just need to be asked more questions about it and I, I think that they are people just like everybody else and if you get them started talking about it, I think you very quickly find out that um, almost everybody, that's lived a few years has experienced this either in their own family or they've a close friend that's gone through it or, you know, they they know that that these these things are, are problems, but I think that there's just so many so many other priorities that are pushed in front of them that they you know, they focus on what they're gonna be asked questions about during the debates and the you know, they to a large degree I think that they're they talk about the things that they're they're asked to talk about, and mm-hmm. and so I think we need to start asking them to to talk about this. And I think that um, once we can get enough conversation happening, I you know this is it's pretty you know pretty hard not to support family caregivers really. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so um, I think it just needs to you know to to get get enough um, critical mass behind it to yeah. to get prioritized.
0: Uh huh. For people who don't necessarily see themselves as activists, but, you know, they're com- concerned about these issues, how can they begin to make a difference?
1: Well, that's a great question, and I think that it kind it of depends on your personality and your comfort level and, and you know, how you want her to go about this. A relatively non-threatening way to, to just get started if you're uncomfortable, talk, you know, public speaking or um, going and talking to your legislator directly is, is to send letters. And we've got some sample letters on our website that you could use and just, you know, download it and tweak it to be more specific to your situation.
0: And that website is caregivercore.org. That's caregivercore, C-O-R-P-S, dot org.
1: Um, But just sharing in brief kind of your story and why you think it's important to support family caregivers is, is one place to start. If you're not intimidated about showing up at your local um, party meetings, generally speaking, my experience has been people—you know—people are very welcome and excited to have people that come and, and want to share issues at those local meetings, and it's you know, a, a friendly crowd by and large. And so, it's going and just talking at your. You know, it's your local meetings and sharing why you're concerned about this and, and why you would like the party to take a stand on this, I think is an easy, relatively, thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a number of organizations that are advocating on behalf of caregivers and it tends to vary state by state who's the most active in that state. But uh, doing some some checking around, and we we do have some resources on our website um, broken out state by state to um, help you get links to the to the people that are involved. And, and so that's another way to to get started is just talking to other people that are concerned also. And uh, learning how you can become part of that conversation in your state, and you know, there's power in numbers, and finding sort of your your people uh, that can help support you in this. Mm-hmm.
0: So, y- you personally are are you going state by state by state yourself? And what is what is that like? What has your journey been like through all this?
1: Well, unfortunately, it's not just me. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, so we have a we have a, a core team. Most of us are volunteers, um, and we have we sort of divided um, up the, number, the states that have uh, party platforms and, and each of us is, takes a lead role as the coordinator for the state. Um, and then we, we just find uh, key contacts within the state and then we coach them basically on, on how to get started and getting this on the platform in their states. And so some places that's been pretty hands-on to the point where, you know, I've driven and met with advocates in the state and, you know, sat down and had pizza together and, and kind of talked to over these things. Some states that's more um, over the phone or via email that we, we do most of the connections. And so it, it depends somewhat just on the infrastructure of the state and how confident and politically savvy the contacts that we make in the state are and geographically. Proximity and how realistic and um, economically feasible it is to get together. You know, we've done an awful lot through through technology. Both um, we you know use regular video conferencing to bring our group together to work on things, and um, but also just kind of be a little bit more old-fashioned emails and and phone calls too.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you seen the process evolve in a way that is exciting for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's been fascinating because it it really has evolved from just sort of a vague idea into, you know, really concrete tools and and a a very nicely organized website and downloadable language templates. And it's um, having gone through those original sort of putting all those things together and sort of laboriously pouring over the language and stuff to now having tools in place that are, are really um, easy to use and easy to adapt it's been fun and it's really gotten so much smoother when we bring on the new state and new uh, volunteers it's so much easier now to guide them through the process at first we were you know we were really figuring it out as we went along it's, it's not like the, there's a guidebook to the, doing this so um, it's been you know rapid improvement cycles really uh, as we've we've learned we we adapt things pretty quickly and start doing it differently the next day and so that's been really fun and exciting and i think pretty effective
0: Mm -hmm. you better be careful you might end up running for office (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, my husband might kill me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you, you're just the kind of representative that is getting elected. <laughs> you know, <laughs> nobody's electing career politicians anymore. There's a good side to that, and there's a bad side to that. But yeah, you you, you, yeah. you could bring fresh new ideas to Washington. <laughs> you already are.
1: Well, um, well thanks to the vote of confidence.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we need people like you to speak truth to power. I think people feel alienated from the political process because politicians aren't really talking to them in even what sounds like natural language. I mean, it sounds Uh scripted. It's like bumper sticker language or it's shouting, and it's not all their fault either. Uh So what I really like about the website is that it sort of takes these rather complicated slash borderline intimidating concepts and brings them down to a very accessible level. And I think it's a great project. I want to let you go. I want to ask, however, if there's anything else that you would like to add to leave with our listeners.
1: You know, just really uh, an encouragement that go on the website, check it out. And if you've got ideas of how we can work better in your state or um, additional information that would would help out. I mean, that's how we've gotten better is by listening to people that are are interested in care and and then working together to create a more usable product. And so, by all means, we, we... welcome volunteers. We're grateful and we love the input and the energy that people bring back to the project. So if you don't like what you see on there and you've got a different idea that you think would be a better approach, absolutely open to that. This is not prescriptive. It's a very inclusive process.
0: Well, that's great. Dr. Victoria Walker, she's the national coordinator of the Family Caregiver Platform Project and that website is caregivercore.org. That's caregivercore, C-O-R-P-S.org. Vicki, it's been so great having you on the show, and I really appreciate your time and your work. Drive safely, okay? Okay. Thanks, Jenna. Okay. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know what you thought about today's show. You can email me at Jana at agewise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at agewise.com and listen to this podcast and lots of other fresh ones on the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand radio network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well, age wise.